sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. We are called to help our friends in need. You can't count on me like one, two, three, I'll be there. And I know when I need it, I can count on you. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, a special conversation with the president of the Duval County Medical Society, Ferdinand Formoso. Then... What's the future of vets' mental health? Dr. John Eaton of the Wounded Warriors Project joins us to tell us. But first, whether you call Duval County home or listening from afar, our first conversation is sure to captivate as we sit down with the president of the Duval County Medical Society. We'll be delving into the heart of healthcare, discussing not just local matters, but exploring broader issues that resonate with all of us. So no matter where you are, grab a cup of coffee or tea, settle in and join us as we uncover the insights, challenges, and triumphs shaping the medical landscape with our esteemed guest today. So without further ado, let's welcome the president of the Duval County Medical Society, Dr. Ferdinand Formoso, who joins us in studio. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much, Dr. Servin. It's an honor to be here in the studio and uh, talk about Duval County Medical Society, which is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I thank you deeply for, for the invitation. We are so happy to have you here. And let's just start off with basics. Um, can you introduce, first of all, um, yourself as part of the medical community in our county here? Sure. Well, I'm uh, to start with, I'm an osteopathic physician, and I trained in the New York City area, and uh, initially thought that I was going to be a general surgeon, but uh, after learning how, uh, the long hours in the hospital and never being <laughs> home, uh, I, I realized very quickly that that didn't mesh with the, the lifestyle that I was looking for long-term. So I switched into the specialty that I do now, which is a, a physical medicine rehabilitation and, and now a, a subspecialist in uh, interventional pain management. And I'm a private practitioner. I'm one of the uh, you know, dinosaurs, so to speak, and uh, becoming more of an endangered species as a, a person that owns my practice. And, and I, I'm not an employed physician, which is 
a blessing and a curse at times, but it has been mostly very rewarding to to be able to run a practice uh, on my own and and have the great folks around me to to help me run that practice. I and we'll follow on some of this because I know that that's what and the the way the future of medicine looks like is some of the, some of the stuff we're going to be covering in our conversation today, but. Before we go on and do that, let's do one other introduction. Um, you just introduced yourself, um, but I don't know how well our listeners know about the Duval County Medical Society, what it is, um, how long it's been around. Can you can you share that part of it with uh, us? Absolutely, and that, that's a great point that... Uh, it is. It, it does amaze me as I've spoken to people and now as as the sitting president, uh, a lot of people don't know that it exists and and what we do. The interesting thing is the the Duval County Medical Society is actually the oldest medical society in the state of Florida. Really? Most most people are not aware of that. Uh, there were physicians that bound together in 1853, and uh, there were illnesses at that time and. And the physicians grouped together to form the first organized medicine uh, society in the state. It, it predated uh, any future society by about 20 years. Wow. And most people aren't aware also that the Florida Medical Association, which now we know about, uh, actually was born out of the Duval County Medical Society. And the, and the state association was housed here in Jacksonville for many years until... Uh, Tallahassee came to being, and and then the Florida Medical Association relocated there. That is fascinating. I did not know uh, such an august history uh, in terms of just how it ties into the whole state, for that matter. So to those who are not in the medical healthcare force or doctors, for that matter, uh, what does a society such as this one focus on? What is it, what is its main mission and goals? The, at the core, it is a way for physicians to band together, which I think is, is critical, especially as medicine has evolved in the way that it, it has. As I said earlier, I'm one of the rare uh, non-employed physicians, but now as physicians have most largely now become employed, it is that much more important for us to have common ground in a society like this for us to come together and speak about issues that we may have from, you know, practice challenges, patient care challenges, uh, you know, business challenges for those of us that still do run our own practices. Uh, so I think the, the uh, having a society available for that core purpose is so critical. And then it's just a, a, from a community initiative standpoint also is, is very important, both on a local level and at a state level. How big is this? That's another great question because most people aren't aware of this either. With our history comes size, and we actually are the largest organized medical society in the state. We have proudly uh, over 2,000 uh, physician members at this time, which is incredible. Wow. And, and, and does that, is it, is, is it strictly our county or does it go beyond? It's Duval County. Now we, we're sort of, I, I hate to say that, but we, we're sort of the, the, the head of the Northeast medical consortium, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, that 
and and the presidents of St. John's, Clay, and Nassau will get together on occasion and, and discuss issues. And and uh, we have a Northeast Florida Medical Political Action Committee that we form that involves all of those counties and, and presidents and societies. Uh, but in the in the region, by far, we are are the largest. Uh, that also gives us from a state government standpoint, when we, we go to the Florida Medical Association, uh, we have the largest, one of the, large, I believe, the largest delegation in the House of Delegates. Wow. Uh, many people may not be aware of this, but uh, from a political standpoint, uh, representatives from the different areas of the state once a year go to go to uh, usually it's Orlando, but we'll meet and the House of Delegates will get together and discuss concerns in healthcare and and literally vote on positions that we want to take as a as a, a group of physicians. In this case, the Florida Medical Association, because of the size of Duval. Uh, and the Duval County Medical Society, we therefore have that largest delegation uh, and have a larger voice because of that. And, and through that, the leaders of the FMA often are born from our region. Uh, we have the current uh, president-elect is from our region. Does this all connect to the American Medical Association as well, or is that separate? That's separate. Okay. Now, so, uh, many of our delegates and, and representatives at a state level also do decide to become AMA or American Medical Association delegates, uh, but that uh, is, isn't always a one-to-one -one ratio, let's say. Uh, but directly from the Duval County Medical Society and the leadership of the society, uh, those folks feed in to the Florida Medical Association leadership as well, and we're very proud of that. Uh, and it's, there are many people to list. I don't, you know, don't want to forget anybody specific, but, but we've had presidents, we've had you know, Speaker of the House representing from our area, uh, you know, very high-level chairman positions and, and committees within the Florida Medical Association. It's been, been wonderful, and, and those folks have been great mentors to me as well. That is amazing. So that so that's what it tells me as I'm listening to you is that uh, Jacksonville uh, medicine as a collective based on this society has a pretty good voice for what happens in Florida medicine. Absolutely. Uh, and many physicians don't either are not they're they're not noticing it happening because it's sort of happening in the background or don't realize the importance of of that advocacy but if 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 the folks aren't out there on the ground doing it trust me and being in this world for as long as i have the others that are not physicians are not necessarily looking out for us let's just say that understood let me kind of get into some of the work uh, that you're all on. And, and as you said, this is for representation and advocacy and policy. What there's, when, when I think of all that's going on in medicine, it's, it's like, it just makes my head swim. And I'm speaking as a no neurologist doubt. for that. No matter. doubt. Uh, and so what, what are the key healthcare policy or advocacy priorities for the society that you 
all are focused on at this time? So there, there's a few angles that we can look at it. Let's start just first at a local level. So locally, the Duval County Medical itself, uh, the, the society itself directly is involved in, in certain uh, events and, and, and we'll probably get into that a little bit in a bit. But there's also the foundation, which is an arm of the Duval County Medical Society that was formed in the late 50s, more as the sort of charitable arm. And, okay. and that, the foundation, is the, the part of the society that literally is actively involved in community care and community health care initiatives. Okay. One of the big things that that we're very proud of is a program called Flu Vax Jack. Sure, I don't know sure. if you've we, heard of that. Absolutely. Uh, but this uh, this provides no cost uh, flu vaccines to uninsured folks, and uh, it really has made a huge difference. We've provided approximately one hundred forty thousand dollars worth of free vaccines in the community, and, and that's just been such a great and, and an amazing success uh, for the uh, for the community. The other thing that we get involved in, have gotten involved in recently, is uh, the opioid issue, oh, yeah. and yeah. and and there's naloxone distribution centers that that have popped up, and we have been very supportive of of those types of things. And there there are many like that, but just to highlight a couple of them. Uh, in my world, the opioid crisis is a day to day issue as an interventional pain physician. And ironically, now we're actually seeing shortages in many of the pharmacies, and we're dealing with those challenges every day. Uh, patients, legitimate patients that are in pain, literally are not able to get the medication that they need to function because the uh, manufacturing has been uh, reduced to in an effort to combat the opioid crisis. So it's sort of you know the health. There's an example of the healthcare system sort of fighting against itself. That's right. Uh, so those types of conversations are happening at a local level, and and these programs are 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 great for the community, and can have a huge impact on the community locally. Now at a, at a state level, which is more that that's more of where I've been become okay. involved and have had a lot of interest. I've as part of the legislative committee and, and being part of the political action committee here locally and at a state level. Uh, I've been traveling to Tallahassee a number of, for a number of years and meeting the legislators and, and, and we have direct, you know, influence on legislative efforts that happen at a state level. Okay. For example, this year, a group of leaders went to Tallahassee and, and we had an agenda of what we felt was very important at, at the moment. And I'll list you know, a few of the things that we went through this year. One big one was a dispute resolution uh, process that we were trying to get reform. What uh, is dip- dispute resolution? What does that mean? That means if you, let's say you are a patient and you go to Dr. Formoso to have treatment, and the insurance company, for whatever reason, decides that, that they didn't want to pay for it or something happened with the, with the coverage, and now you end up with a, with a bill. There's a dispute there. Uh, so many patients are not aware of, well, where is, this, where is your health insurance regulated? Is it a, 
federal insurance? Is it a Florida state insurance? They, right. they don't know. Right. So we're trying to get that to be clear on the insurance card. So it's clearly denoted if it's a Florida plan, let's say. And then the other thing is we we want it to be very transparent that the state government actually has a dispute resolution process in place. Right. But people don't know about it. So we want to have a QR code placed on everybody's insurance card that you with a smartphone you scan and magically it takes you to that state website that shows where you how you go about this dispute process. You would think that this is obvious and it's something that should be transparent, but isn't. I, I, and I love the idea of the simplicity of it. And, and I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. And if you're just joining us, we are talking to the president of the Duval County Medical Society, Dr. Ferdinand Formoso. We want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at Jay Servin. Let me get back to that. So it sounds like a fantastic idea. How close are we to something like that? We think from our conversations with the legislators and I, and this is in concert also with the Florida Medical Association, it seems that there's traction for this and, and just not to belabor this point, but for no other, for let's say for no other reason, but at for, for transparency, like I said, but that website has been pretty dormant yeah. because people don't know about it. Got it. Unfortunately, that's being construed as there is not a problem. But there is a problem. It's just people aren't going there because they don't know that there's a dis- uh, dispute resolution process. So that's what we're hoping to correct. Another large issue and you may be aware of this in your practice, is prior authorization. Yeah, that's huge. In fact, it just made national headlines uh, uh, just recently. Correct. And as a procedural physician, because I'm, I'm doing procedures every day, we are required to obtain prior authorization prior to doing these procedures. What does that mean for people out there? That means that we have to, dis- we have to display and show that we have... We have met medical necessity by documenting certain things. Patients, for example, have to fail physical therapy or certain conservative efforts first prior to being able to obtain authorization for a procedure. So we do our part and make sure that we have everything in place. Unfortunately, that does not guarantee that the insurance company will actually pay that's right. For that procedure, even <clears throat> though you may have gone through all the steps that they, the rules that they've set forth. So they make us do all this work. I've had to hire staff literally that's dedicated to that work. And it costs a lot of money as a private practitioner to, to do that. And in the end, to have that not really mean anything is very, is very difficult to, to swallow. Because for patients, they end up not getting it or it, or it they into get a, a bill for it and they shouldn't have. They, we want that prior authorization process to have teeth is basically what it comes down to. We want it to be a contractual obligation that if you are going to have a system, then it should mean something. There shouldn't be the ability to retroactively take back payments 
if we've showed and and we've obtained prior authorization, then then that should be uh, uh, taken uh, to mean something. So where do you think this, uh, I know that uh, there's just been recently new rules uh, that have been either proposed or accepted. Where does that leave us with this one? From a state level, we're hoping that the legislation goes through. We don't know. I mean, then this is where politics sort of clash with healthcare. You and I speaking here, and both as physicians and advocates for patients, that makes sense for something like this. Unfortunately, when you get in the political world, you have folks on certain side of the aisle that don't want to create regulations like this, and so that's where you get into these into these political battles. And and unfortunately, it's just a reality of of our world. I want to work in a couple questions here because. Um, I, I could spend hours because <laughs> this is this is so many topics to hit. But I want to hit on on these two. The uh, first one is um, what is the hope or the big goal or vision for the society, and what can our listeners do to help support that? The the big goal for me, I mean, if we're looking at it from a you know a thirty thousand foot view, is I'd really want to get the awareness of the society to be better. Okay. You know, I I I think that you know the the the, the fact that most people don't know that we exist, I think that could be better. That's part of why I'm happy to do interviews right. like this and sort of get out and and speak about the history of the society, which you were shocked even hearing that and you know, just getting out there to to let the community at large know about us, but also have the physicians, even even though we are a large society, there are many physicians that either are not participating or don't really know what we offer. And and I'd love to see more of us band together because it, in the end, uh, it's really about the the value of the society, the the power of advocacy, like we talked about. A lot of physicians are just practicing and and they're hyper-focused on the care of their patient, which obviously is the number one thing that we do. But that care is impeded by regulations and insurance industries. And, and if folks like me aren't in Tallahassee talking about these things, the care of the patient will be affected. And, and that's what's important in, in sort of having that feeling resonate. And that's what I, at our meetings when we meet together and I, and I speak to people one-on-one, I try to get them to really understand and, and, and believe in how important that is and, and how important us banding together and advocating for each other is. So ultimately, let doctors be doctors, uh, if you will, or, or whomever, so that we can take care of patients and help them without all these regulations. In our last question um, that we have for you, um, what message, what global element do you want to leave with our listeners today? Uh, Is there a website? Is there anything, uh, a place they can find the society, you and others, 
so that they are able to do that and help you along on that mission? Sure. Our, our website is dcmsonline.org. Uh, everything is there. You'll be able to you know, see our history and the officers that are currently there. We have meetings regularly. Uh, we try to meet usually every six weeks or so uh, to, to bring folks together. And, and there's different uh, uh, angles and, and uh, agendas that we have with those meetings. One of them during the year is a meeting with the local legislators, mm-hmm. so they come in. So we'd love to, you know, have more folks join us at those meetings. And and if you are interested, there are committee positions that, as the president, I'm able to, to place people into those committees. And from there, which is how I started, then you kind of grow from there, get involved on the board, potentially then at that point, the executive committee. And really as far as you you'd want to take it and we we need good good people to come and join us i love hearing that message i want to thank you dr formosa for coming in telling us about the society the good work that you guys are doing to help people out there to help all of us uh and i just really appreciate your time and efforts today it's been a, a absolute pleasure thank you so much we'll have you ha- come back for for further conversations I, I would i would love that fantastic we've been talking to dr ferdinand formoso he is president of the duval county medical society coming up after your health headlines helping vets mental health at the wounded warriors project and we'll be right back. More than a bird, I'm more than a plane, I'm more than some pretty face beside a train, and it's not easy to be me. I wish that I could cry, fall upon my I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It? These are some of your weekly health headlines. A preliminary review by the Food and Drug Administration found that a class of popular drugs used for weight loss doesn't appear to spark suicidal thoughts in patients. After a detailed review, the FDA said information in the reports didn't demonstrate a clear relationship between suicidal thoughts and use of the drugs known as GLP-1 agonists. In a scathing editorial in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, physicians sound the alarm on Zoranolone, a drug recently approved for postpartum depression. The author of the editorial wrote that the FDA saw fit to approve Zoranolone based on modest efficacy data and trials that compared it with substandard medical care. This medication, according to the researchers, has significant limitations, including misuse potential, impaired psychomotor functioning, lack of compatibility with breastfeeding, and anticipated exorbitant costs. 
Lastly, in a study published in the Journal American Medical Association Internal Medicine, researchers found that nearly one in four hospital patients who died or were transferred to the intensive care had experienced a diagnostic error. Nearly 18% of misdiagnosed patients were harmed or died. The University of California San Francisco researchers call misdiagnosis an urgent public health problem. The study found that rates of misdiagnosis range from 1.5% of heart attacks to 17.5% of strokes and 22.5% of lung cancers. And those are your weekly health headlines. Today we explore a topic that resonates with all of us, and that's veterans' mental health. Whether you're a civilian or a service member, this conversation, among many others on the topic, promises to shed light on the complexities of mental well-being and how we as a society can contribute to that healing process. Joining us is a distinguished guest. He's the vice president of Complex Care for the Wounded Warrior Project, and he's here to share insights that extend far beyond military circles. So whether you've worn a uniform or not, stay with us for this discussion on veteran mental health that transcends boundaries and speaks to the collective responsibility we share for the well-being of those who served. Joining us now in studio is the Vice President of Complex Care, John Eaton. Such an honor to have you here. Dr. Joe, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. I want to understand, as as a vice president of Complex Care for the Wounded Warrior Project, help us out with just understanding the Wounded Warrior Project to begin with. What's the mission? What's the focus? Yeah, Wounded Warrior Project's mission is to honor and empower post-9-11 Wounded Warriors. And that dates all the way back. In 2023, we actually just celebrated our 20th anniversary as an organization. Wow. And and going all the way back to 2003, Wounded Warrior Project had representatives providing care and comfort items to the bedside of those first injured service members returning back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And, And since that time, there was a commitment to serve those warriors' needs and always be there. Fast forward to today, that's equated to over 200,000 registered alumni that we serve on a daily basis through a wide range of programming. It's such important work. And we've had um, other organizations that operate in this space. Um, I'm curious, how do you answer the question, how does the mental health challenges faced by veterans differ from that of the civilian population? And how is it similar? Yeah, no, that's a phenomenal question. And really, when you think about the similarities, mental health is a human a human need, right? right. It's something we experience, and, and certainly civilians as veterans are experiencing uh, mental health uh, challenges. But when you think about the differences, prevalence is something that really comes to mind. Uh, every year, we conduct an annual warrior survey with all 200,000 alumni. And what we learned in 2022 is that over 75% of Wounded Warrior Project alumni are living with post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, or depression. And even digging further, we know that 25% of our warriors are having thoughts or actions of suicide at least once in the last 12 months. So the prevalence is certainly something that 
creates a sense of urgency. And also it's it's the system to navigate. We know that transition can be a very difficult time as veterans are transitioning from service uh, to veteran status. And, and that comes with an entire new healthcare system to navigate from benefits, from access to care. And so um, really important, these dynamics to understand when we think about the broader veteran mental health needs. And I want to remind everyone out there that since we are talking about suicide and depression, there is a national crisis hotline, 988. Please reach out if you're ever having those thoughts or know someone who is. Where are, with the regards to the Wounded Warrior Project, how does it go about to do its work? Do the veterans find them how how do how how do you, how does that work yeah. in terms of of how you take care of these folks or inter, interact with them? Sure. And so, Wounded Warrior Project is is very intentional with a holistic, high touch care model of how we provide programs and services. Over sixteen programs really uh, come to to fill out the breadth of what we offer at Wounded Warrior Project, and it spans from a wide range of mental health programs that can be anything from weekly 20-minute sessions with a talk specialist to really empower warriors to set goals through supportive listening, all the way through to adventure-based mental health programming, getting warriors out, whitewater rapids, climbing mountains, really getting out of their comfort zone and and testing what they think is possible, um, but also empowering them through the process. Um, Beyond that, and, and really outside of the traditional thought of mental health services, are things like connection, benefits. We have an alumni team that reaches out and is hosting over 20 live events across the country every day. And so really looking at multiple avenues and aspects to reach warriors where they are, both during service and after service. So do they know when they finish their service that of your existence of the organization? Or is it is it like just one of here's a list of of folks that you can reach out to. Yeah, that's great. And it's something we're very intentionally focused on today. So in one of the areas is just raising awareness. So every active duty soldier is eligible as a Wounded Warrior Project okay. alumni. And so we're very intentional to work within the active duty population, both during service in areas such as Alaska and, and others where there's a heightened need for mental health support, but also during that transition um, as they're readying and, and making that transition from active duty to the military, we're here to support them with, with their benefits, with establishing a new work uh, in, through our Warriors to Work program, again, in this multimodal, holistic approach. You mentioned that there's uh, numerous programs. What, what are the type of success stories uh, that you've seen from these initiatives that's really helped to transform lives? Well, you know, in this one, it's really powerful to me personally, and it's something that we've um, we actually just shared throughout recognition of Suicide Prevention Month. Month, and it's a it's a, a really a vignette of a, a warrior, Phil Krabby, who um, has been very open with his struggles as he's gone through transitioning from active duty, and and honestly, as many veterans have found in the same scenario, turned to things like drugs, alcohol, for over 15 years to cope with some of those uh, struggles that he had. Um, one a friend that he made, you know, reached out and said, "You need to register with Wounded Warrior Project. They have a lot of events. You know, you just you should make that connection." And he did. And so he started attending alumni events and building connection with his peers. Um, and they noticed that he was struggling. And so something that Phil highlighted that really made uh, impact on him was that. You know, someone told him an employee that you need to forgive yourself for the things that you've done in your past. It was so impactful that he actually tattooed it on his hand. Um, wow. And in a moment of 
of, uh, you know, of a peak need where he was contemplating and having thoughts of suicide, he looked at his hand and that was what he said really caused him to reach out for support. So he took advantage of the Warrior Care Network, uh, accelerated treatment model for PTSD. Um, and fast forward to today, he is actually serving as a peer mentor now, giving back and being that same bridge to empower his brothers and sisters. What is it about the military experience that contributes to mental health? I, I mean, We talk so much about mental health. It seems like it's, whether you're in the military or not, uh, there are issues left and right, and, and the numbers are, are just so high what about what is it about the military experience when you when you mentioned those numbers about 75 percent if i understood you mm-hmm. right those that's huge yeah and there, there's a couple of factors i think predominantly one is is the culture that that those individuals are experiencing throughout the military so there's a sense of self-reliance and pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and i can kind of bear this down but what they're finding is as things are exacerbated and, and life continues on, um, they really need to address those issues that can't be pushed down, right? Um, the other piece is really this sense of, of duty of um, really minimizing my needs because it, there's someone who has greater needs. And, and if I take advantage of this service, I may be taking it away from someone who needs it more. So there's really this you know service aspect even to the reality or the consciousness of not accepting that treatment. But broadly speaking, it, it, it even more so focuses around stigma and just conversations like this, normalizing the conversation and and actually just giving those those examples of how other veterans have taken that support and it didn't reduce their their uh, you know credibility. It didn't make them less of a person, but really was actually more honoring by doing that. How does the Wounded Warrior Project interact with mental health professionals, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, any of the number of individuals that are involved in trying to manage these issues, how does it connect with them? Yeah, great question. And, and there's a wide range of areas where we connect, but one that I'd really love to highlight is, is with the Warrior Care Network. And so uh, we recently just announced at the beginning of the month uh, a, a third round of investment, $100 million to support the next three years of really transforming the care model around post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. Um, and what that looks like today, it's a partnership with Wounded Warrior Project and four academic medical centers over the last eight years have transformed the way that PTSD is treated from, you know, originally it's a week long uh, uh, talk therapy once a week for a year or a six to nine week residential program. Fast forward to that today, we're able to, in partnership with those medical facilities and our knowledge and understanding of warriors, um, have really been able to put together this accelerated model that is getting the same results within a year in a two-week period. Um, and so looking at, that's a that's a great example of bringing together clinicians, uh, VSOs, and, and putting warriors at the center and really advocating and, and innovating care. Um, so it's been a, a world-class partnership um, that's, that's only growing. How does it work here in Northeast Florida, just to kind of bring us into the community here? Um, it, are, are, is access to these... Um, networks and other groups fairly accessible, easy? It is, yes. And and what we look at, so our broad mental health continuum of support all starts at the front door, which is our triage team. 
And so every warrior that reaches out through our resource center is connected to a triage teammate. And uh, there's really a deep conversation that goes into not just the needs they're bringing there today, but other areas where we feel like we could provide some support. Um, that teammate connects them to a wide range, whether it's outpatient care, whether it's establishing a system of care with the VA, um, or looking at which of these facilities would be the most appropriate based on the individual needs of the veteran. And so um, while we have locations in Atlanta, Chicago, uh, LA and Boston, basic based on those uh, individual needs, is what that where that location would be best. Um, and of course, you know, all of these services are free of charge to the veteran. Um, so not only just the clinical services, but we also know that there's life that we have to uh, address. And and picking up and moving for two weeks also brings a lot of barriers with it. And so whether it's supporting rent, travel, all of those components, not a not a dime is expensed uh, for the veteran. There is so much of telemedicine, telehealth in the mental health sphere now. Um, what role does technology and these innovations in healthcare technologies play in providing these mental health resources to these vets in need? Yeah. And, and I, I think many have said this, if there was a silver lining in COVID, I think one that, that we've seen is the rapid deployment and um, acceptance of telehealth as a, a method for clinical uh, services. And so we've seen that throughout our our accelerated treatment program is what, what used to be a, a two-week fly to Boston, we're now able to do through technology in the comfort of their own home. Um, in addition, we've seen technology increase access to care. And so just warriors reaching out for mental health services increased by 60% throughout COVID into today. And so just this uh, wider knowledge and acceptance of leveraging those resources um, has been huge. And so on the flip side of that, we know that um, through COVID, we leverage technology to do virtual connection events. And right. it's hard to um, to recreate the feeling of climbing a mountain through Zoom. And so while some of those areas have backed off a bit, we've actually um, been able to expedite that work and through increased access to care for the clinical side. How does uh, an organization such as yourself help the larger family, if you will? So many of these situations it's not just the vet but it's everyone around them uh, because it just affects everyone how do you help that the 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 group if you will Mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's a really great point that you're making and and when i shared about the the 200,000 registered alumni we actually have 50,000 family support members. Wow. And so this could be anything from a spouse, a parent, a friend, or a neighbor. Really let the the warrior decide. Um, but what we've seen over time is just, uh, which is amazing, is the desire to include the family in the programming. And so that's led to innovations around the way that we provide these adventure-based programs through our Project Odyssey. We have our largest demand is around couples odysseys. So a cohort of couples who are working through sound relationships and how to really be show up as a couple. And that's even bred into family odysseys, taking a whole family for this experiential event. Um, and, and that be, extends into the clinical side as well. So in the in our Warrior Care Network, we actually have family members that are participating in treatment with veterans in, in key programs that are highlighted specifically because of that reason. When a, a warrior who's gone through this program goes back to the same environment, we're really not taking in the holistic picture. And so it's been a key driver in how we're developing our programming. 
when you talk about these experiential uh, programs, and, and you mentioned it could be riding falls or rapids mm-hmm. or, or going off to certain areas, what length of time, how, how does that all work? Because some of that can sound, it sounds like that, that you don't have to pay for it, but but it, it sounds like the, certainly the time and things can, can be a bit. It's an investment uh, for certain. And it's actually, of our mental health programming, the, the largest in demand. Um, I w- certainly appealing to take that adventure and, and almost, you know, it t- acts as a way to reduce some of the barriers to jumping into a mental health program. Uh, but the program in total is nine weeks. And we run a variety of models, but uh, typically the third week is when these uh, warriors will come together and some place across the country and go through that uh, adventure as a cohort. But there's a buildup to that. And then there's also six weeks of cohort debriefs walking through the curriculum and putting into action the tools that they learned on that excursion. What's the biggest challenge that you all face? in terms of just trying to help as many vets as you can? I think when you look at the challenges uh, facing veterans in mental health, there there are two that we're very, uh, you know, we advocate heavily on, and one is access to care. Um, you know, quite frankly, timeliness is of the essence when someone's reaching out for support for mental health, and we know that time can only uh, be a negative factor in the outcome. And so, uh, you know, on average, Americans, uh, from the onset of the first symptom to to clinical treatment is 11 years. Um, and so we're, wow. uh, you know, those are areas where we're advocating heavily to remove barriers, increase access to care. Um, uh, the other piece is really leveraging, you know, the importance of the mental health workforce. Again, this isn't unique only to veterans, but is highlighted in that community. When you establish an effective care team, any transition to that can be detrimental to the relationship that you've built. And so really supporting and working alongside our partners to increase the workforce and and grow and, and keep that stable is, is a, a huge determinant in successful treatment. Are there any uh, public awareness campaigns that you want to highlight uh, with regards to just destigmatizing the issue of mental health uh, for our listeners? Yeah, a, a great question. And, and there are. So a focus that we recently, you know, it's the several years in the making is a is a, is a uh, around hashtag combat stigma. And so this is really helping to combat the the stigma associated with talking about mental health, but also, you know, talking about suicide. And so this really, you know, puts on display, as I mentioned, our warriors who their shared experience and they're uh, sharing that with other veterans um, to really normalize the conversation. But also we know that it's so much more impactful coming from up here. Um, and so stories like Phil's and so many others are are focused, featured on our website now and, and at hashtag combat stigma, where it really does create that normalcy. Um, and provide touch points, and then also steps to receive support if needed. I want to let you have the the last word, if you will, uh, for our audience and our listeners. Uh, what advice would you like to make sure that they take away uh, about the Wounded Warrior Project? And maybe they want to get involved. Help guide them in that way. Yeah, what I'd like to, for people to take away, whether you're a veteran or a civilian, is really just increasing your awareness around veteran issues. Um, as a civilians, how can we have more awareness and support and be a, be a resource to other veterans, whether within our family, 
our friends and, and in our communities. Um, and for the veterans, it's, you know, just want them to know that Wounded Warrior Project is here for your needs. Um, you, you, thanks to your service and duty, uh, we're able to, through the generosity of our donors, provide holistic program to support you and your family's needs. Um, and we're just a phone call away. We can register on woundedwarriorproject.org or call our resource center at any time. We're here for support. Uh, John, it has been such a pleasure to have you tell us about Wounded Warrior Project and the fantastic work that you're doing to help veteran mental health. I just really appreciate you coming in, and we hope you'll join us in the future. Thanks, Dr. Jeff. We've been talking to John Eaton. He is the vice president of Complex Care at the Wounded Warrior Project. That's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is a look at heart disease and stroke for February's Heart Month. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. 
the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop. 